0: This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're in a situation that
1: we haven't dealt with in modern times.
2: The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years.
1: From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently.
0: In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Esports is a good aberration. We're still moving forward. We're part
1: of something much bigger than the sport right now. The health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the
2: country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch.
0: And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry.
2: And a lot happening in the world of sports, as there always is, business and sports colliding. Later on, we're going to talk with Todd Liewicki. He is running the Kraken. They are debuting in the NHL. But one of the things that we've got to talk about, guys, that really broke out this week was the world of crypto. We talk about it all the time across all the platforms at Bloomberg, and yet it seems to be finding a foothold in the world of sports for fans, teams, and players alike. A month ago, we talked to Dave Cavill. He was talking about Bitcoin being something he would accept for luxury suites. He wasn't quite sure what was going to happen next. Well, we found out what's happening next this week because Dogecoin, good Lord, we've heard so much Dogecoin this week across all of Bloomberg. They're now using that, accepting that, I should say, to buy seats uh, for Oakland A's games. Pretty amazing. And I feel like this is a breakout moment, Lindsay.
3: I think so as well. Uh, we hear it more and more every single day. Uh Now, some teams are a little bit reluctant. Some teams are very skeptical about this uh, cryptocurrency, but Oakland seems to be diving in. Players are, as we know, we heard from some individual players. Rob Gronkowski, the tight end for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, has an 80% return in the last two months. His $1.8 million investment in Ether is now worth over $3.3 million. And he says, I'm holding
2: Yeah. Well, don't sleep on Gronk. The enthusiasm, we should say, guys, is not universal. Steve Paliuka, of course, one of the co-owners of the Boston Celtics, isn't quite convinced. Personally, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around uh, Bitcoin being a viable currency. I see blockchain as extremely valuable, but Bitcoin's going to have to go a long way to go to be accepted in lots of places. You know, Michael Barr, we also heard and we always look at sponsorships and what deals teams are doing. The New York football giants, they've got their first cryptocurrency partner, Grayscale Investments. And when these companies start to get in front of the fans, I mean, they're going to be a game day sponsor. They're sponsoring several other elements of the giants. You know that they feel like there's a market there.
0: I'm trying to get my mind around cryptocurrency in general. Remember when cash was king? What, what happened? What, what did I miss here? Uh, Dogecoin was supposed to be a joke. And, and, and look at what has happened now. So, yeah, the giants, uh, they're, they're partnering with a cryptocurrency uh, partner. And I, this is, I guess, going to be the future.
2: I mean, it certainly is going to be the future. I think, or it certainly feels that way right now, Lynchy. You know, when you think about, you know, cash is king and how we went to credit cards and uh, the evolution is so fast around crypto. I think one of the interesting things to consider is that there are all these different forms of it, but part of it is about security, part of it is about, you know, changing value. And listen, everybody's in this to make a buck in many ways. If you're a team or an athlete or a league, it'll be interesting to see how regulation comes on here. But but certainly it's being taken up in a big way.
3: Yeah, I remember our conversation midweek with Noel Lamontagne of, of Verdant's Capital Advisors in LA, a former player for the Cleveland Browns. And he was still very, very skeptical in his uh, advising his clients to jump into cryptocurrency. But sometimes, as he says, the locker room can be a great place for camaraderie, but it can be a bad place for financial advice. And that's his big worry about professional athletes.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because we talk to a lot of wealth advisors who are advising athletes about their portfolios. And crypto is something that's coming up over and over and over again in the sports world and in the celebrity world and, you know, increasingly now into the everyday space. Well, speaking of which, you know, athletes are getting a lot smarter about how they manage their money. They are much more sophisticated when it comes to their investments. Richard Sherman, heard of him, Uh, Seattle Seahawks standout. He spoke with Matt Miller over in Germany about how he is thinking about preserving wealth
4: it's going to continue to evolve and i think that's a testament to to more players um asking more questions uh getting more financially literate more educated uh putting their pride aside i think sometimes you come into a space and and it's human nature you know you've never had things you've 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 lived paycheck to paycheck barely making ends meet your whole life and then you get this huge sum of money and you're able to do all the things you dreamed of doing as a kid and i think it's it's human nature and it's and it's unfortunate um because a lot of the kids in, in the National Football League and the NBA and in the leagues that, that um players and, and, and uh players of color go to uh it changes it changes everything and I think now they're not just looking at the short um the short answers. Everybody's looking more long term and, and finding long term solutions and, and hearing that hey this money needs to last whether it's hundred thousand dollars or a hundred million dollars, like you need to find a way to continue to accumulate wealth, continue to, to go out and find a way to, to, to take this money, take this nest egg and create more wealth and, and more opportunities. And I think in sports people are using their name and names and likeness uh, rights to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies gaining equity, ownership stakes. Uh, You see that predominantly in the NBA, you know, with with players like Steph Curry and KD and um, Draymond, you know, they've been in Silicon Valley uh, making huge waves. You see it with LeBron James. Uh, In in NFL, you're starting to see it, you know, with the quarterbacks. Obviously, it's always going to start there, taking equity in these companies and really – really changing the game. And I think all those factors are are influencing these, these, the younger generation to say, Hmm, maybe I should look at this different. Maybe I should think about this money different. And I think it's going to continue to evolve and continue to get better. Uh, and I'm happy to hear that.
2: So Lynchy, this is a theme. We talk about this all the time on this show. We talked with an advisor, a former NFL player earlier in the week. You can check out that podcast. Verdance capital management is the firm. And, you know, this is what they do. This is big business. And it's an increasingly big business because it's not just, hey, I'm going to endorse this car dealership or I'm going to endorse this watch or I'm going to endorse this cereal. Uh, these are investment stakes these guys are taking. And that has utterly changed the landscape. And they're doing it while they're playing, maybe even before they get into the league when they're in high school or, or college starting to think about uh, you know, where they're putting their money.
3: All of them have an itch, and some of it needs to be scratched long after their playing days are over. Some are done when their playing days are over, and I applaud these guys. I, I never had great vision beyond what was going to happen tomorrow afternoon, and a lot of these guys do, and, and you look at Le- LeBron James and so many other players, Michael Jordan's back in the game right now, and LeBron is still active, as you say, and he's already thinking and already
2: planning for his post-playing days. Today, delighted to be speaking with the CEO and president of the Seattle Kraken, Todd Liewicky. So, Todd, really good to spend some time with you. Uh, guessing you're tired of all the release, the Kraken jokes, but you should have anticipated that. It's an awesome name, <laughs> I have to say. Give us the, the state of play here. Obviously, it, it's all happening now.
1: It is. And, you know, uh, I've been on the case three years now. Um, I had lived in Seattle, I ran the Seahawks for seven years and uh helped get the sounders going and then left and then my brother, who is uh you know he's prolific in many things, you know he was developing his company uh the oakview group uh o v g and uh and Seattle was the largest city in the u s without a winter sports team no n b a no n h l and 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 significantly due to the fact that they just couldn't solve the Rubik's Cube of how to fix an arena. Um, And the public was, the public was, and public officials were saying, hey, we're not going to put public money into this again. Uh, So it was, uh, you know, it was a, a, a standoff and it was tough because a lot of events that should have come to Seattle didn't. It's a great music town. Lots of music events just skipped because the, the building was uh, really dysfunctional for music. Um, and then the Sonics left, and I was running the Seahawks, and to see an NBA team leave a town this vibrant was just shocking. Um, so, uh, you know, my brother responded to the city's RFP. He put forth an incredible, bold vision that said he could hold that roof up, a 40-million-pound roof, while you built a new arena under it. Um, And then, you know, as he was awarded the RFP and came to a memorandum of understanding, uh, he would call me uh, every other hour saying, you need to leave the NFL and come back home and and take the bull by the horns. Um, And that's uh, that's what we did. So it's it's really been a thrilling ride over these last three years.
3: You're going to be compared, obviously, to the Vegas Golden Knights, who came in four years ago in their first year in the league and went to the Stanley Cup Finals. Have you studied their blueprint at all for their success, or are you pretty much uh, on your own and we're going to do things a different way?
1: No, I think that we've absolutely – we've not only studied it, we've admired it. Um, George McPhee is a longtime friend of mine. Kerry Buboltz is the president. And and they did, you know. I think many people on the front end of that said, "Really, hockey in Las Vegas," um, and it proved to be an amazing success. Uh, George has made all the right decisions. Bill Foley has done a terrific job. But one of the things that that I think defines sports in America, and I think globally, but certainly. In north america is or how teams are positioned to give back and be there to support community we've certainly done that during COVID, but so we admire what they've done uh, we've learned from a lot of what they've done and uh you know but we've got to do it on our own here and we've got to do it in a seattle uh centric kind of way and i think we're poised to do that
2: so talk to us about that todd because you know you know as well or, or better than than almost anyone what it takes to to bake a team into the fabric of a city. You've done it there in, in Seattle before. You've done it in other markets as well. And part of that is ensuring that you get the right companies behind you, the right sponsorships, the right community engagement from, from a fan perspective. So walk us through the playbook there.
1: I mean, in the purest forms, we build the brand, and the brand feels so good that partners want to tap into that brand equity to build their brands. But that's actually a two-way street. And so having the right partners can really also build your brand. Um, but there had to be a base premise and a base promise to those partners of what we were going to build. And, you know, for us, that that was one of the most beautiful arenas in the world. And it's going to be – it is just spectacular. It's It scales. It's subterranean. It's in a park. Uh, the historic roof gives instant soul to the project Um, so the arena events so we're going to be busier we're going to be one of the busiest concert venues in north america the promise of the team and fandom the fans here have been incredible but then there's other values you have to stand for and um, i'll give you an example for us is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and we built from day one, we committed to building one of the most diverse staffs in all of sports. And today, uh, 46% of our staff are women, and 26% of our staff represent BIPOC uh, leaders. And so, you know, uh, I think people say, hockey, really, diversity? Yeah. Well, we have a terrific staff. I think it's a high-performance uh, organization. But they represent, and it's something I'm so proud of uh, because I love the game of hockey. Uh, Hockey needs more diversity, and uh, we feel like we're really uh, playing an important role in that.
0: Trying to play sports in a COVID world, and what's important for any team, NHL, NFL, whatever, is getting bodies in the seats, fans, to watch the sport. How can you guys do it, and how do you plan to do it safely?
1: Well, you know, we're listening every single day to leaders, leaders in the medical field, you know, leaders here in the state uh, who are advising us and, tr- and trying to give us uh, insights as to what's coming. Um, I think these facilities, our facility for sure, is going to have policies and procedures relative to cleaning and air filtration that are substantially enhanced that serve their own purpose beyond COVID and uh but I you know we do have one other group we listen to and it's the people who have bought tickets and uh we're sold out for next year I think we'll be sold out for years to come and they have voted they want to get back they want to get into an arena they want to cheer a team uh they want to be with neighbors they want to celebrate community um and they have been unwavering this entire journey uh March 1st, 2018, 32,000 depositors put money down. Um, You know, and they accepted 32,000 depositors because they thought there'd be some fallout. There wasn't a whole bunch. Uh, We ended up taking full season tickets and splitting them. And I don't know that any team, any expansion team has ever done that. We took 4,500 season tickets and cut them down the middle to try and, uh, you know, meet the demand. And even that, we didn't get everyone seated. Um, So the fans have spoken... They want to get back. They want to cheer. Uh, And I think they believe that by the time we drop the puck in the fall, uh, sometime in October, uh, that our world will be returning to some normalcy.
2: So, Todd, talk to us about Seattle as a sports fan's paradise in, in many ways. So, Todd... Talk to us about Seattle from a sports fans perspective from that vantage point. You've seen this from a lot of different perspectives, the demographics, the characteristics of the Seattle fan. It's a fast growing affluent fan base. There is something a little bit different about the vibe that you know better than anyone. Tell us about it. Well,
1: I just love fandom and understanding it and studying it and, uh, You know, and I'd say in my career, um, the greatest privilege I've had is serving the fans. And uh, that's really what I I believe we do. And when I came here with the Seahawks, um, I felt that these were, you know, there was a different kind of fan here. Um, And I think to really understand fandom, you do have to look at it almost in its broadest form, look generationally. And, you know, in the day... This was a long way away from the rest of the United States, and it was kind of the last stop. And people who came here were different, and that held true. Lots of different companies were incubated here. And then, you know, this World's Fair happened here, and the city leaders uh, moved, you know, heaven and earth to facilitate a World's Fair right in the heart of the city. That's when the Space signal was built. That's when our arena roof uh, was born. But that World's Fair focused on future. It focused on technology. So you have a really unique spirit here, but people like belonging here, and they're willing to give up. Wherever they're from, they're willing to kind of drop that hometown jersey at the the border of the state and belong. And they belong to the Mariners and the Sounders and the Storm, and they're going to belong to, you know, the Kraken.
3: Todd, you got a lot of expenses: uh, the expansion fee, the uh, rebuilding the arena, training facility, et cetera, et cetera. What does the new TV deal with ESPN and Turner uh, mean for your your club in this first year with all those big expenses?
1: Gary Bettman is the longest-serving
3: commissioner of Major League Sports. I
1: think he's just done a terrific job of the league. I think the game today is is a is a really beautiful game the way it's played. Um, I think he's done a great job with these two expansion teams. Um, And I think he did a great job with the broadcast deals Um, to be back on ESPN is is really thrilling. I've been a hockey fan my whole, my whole life. Uh, The opening, you know, jingle, the opening music for ESPN, NHL on ESPN, you know, to hear it again was just like fantastic. We're going to play it in the arena and we're going to honor it. But then, you know, to go to Turner and, and create a partnership there. So, A lot of people focused on the dollars, and certainly there was a hefty increase in rights fees. But for me, more than that, it's these two partners who are really committed to the storytelling, uh, to showcasing the league like it deserves, and I'm, I'm super excited.
2: You know, Todd, you've got a couple of high-profile owners, uh, more than a couple, uh, involved here. You yourself are a a minority owner, I believe, of the club. And you also have David Bonderman, who is the majority owner of very well-known private equity investor and philanthropist Jerry Bruckheimer. We've seen many of his movies. It's a fascinating ownership group in many ways at a time when there are a lot of interesting and different people coming into this sport and coming into ownership in general across all major sports. Tell us about this ownership group, what the vibe is, what you think is different and and unique here. Well, David Bonderman's different and unique, that's for sure. Um, (laughs) To say the least, to say the least. Yeah, and you you and I have talked
1: about this, but he's – you know, he's a remarkable person, and uh, I didn't know him very well. Uh, he didn't know me very well, but we built a great relationship. And But he and Jerry Bruckheimer had really been looking, and Jerry's a lifelong hockey fan. He grew up in Detroit. Yeah. Um, he moved to L.A. and kind of, he still followed hockey, but at some point in time, some you know number of years ago, he started skating again, and his passion for the sport is, is pretty intense. And Jerry can do anything he wants. He can go to any event he wants, but he loves the game of hockey, and so he, he and Bondo looked. Uh, they actually looked early on in Las Vegas. They looked other places, but it was when they connected with my brother Tim and said, "Hey, Seattle's the place." Um, and so that was. They were the really the two guys that got this going. Uh, the family that owns Space Needle. The Wright family. Dave Wright is uh, is a significant investor. Uh, Andy Jazzy, who's CEO of Amazon. Um, you know, I knew Andy Wynn uh, when he was just CEO of AWS, but right. he's Andy Jazzy is one of my favorite guys in the whole world. Uh, he's a just a true blue guy. And when you go on a journey like this, um, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. Our investors, I think, are having the time of their lives and to be able to do this, to bring a team here, to fix the arena. And then at some point in time, I do believe the NBA comes. Um, it's yeah. it's really, for many of them, uh, an incredibly wonderful and fulfilling journey. And, you know,
3: for me, I want to win the Cup. Todd, something that stood out to me. I noticed that your local television broadcast network, you've expanded into Alaska. What went into that thinking?
1: Well, that was, that was something else that was important to us uh, when I was uh, here during my tenure with the Seahawks. You know, I I fell in love with Alaska and traveled up there a lot uh, on on business, but also catching release, uh, and salmon fishing, and just seeing what is you know the Serengeti of of North America. It's an amazing place. So when we were granted our territory, we really uh, pushed pretty hard that we wanted Alaska to be a part of it. Um, Lo and behold, we were given the territory, and lo and behold, uh, one of the things we realized this year was that uh, the University of Alaska in Anchorage, facing massive budget cuts uh, due to oil and and other challenges with the state budget, um, you know, a 42-year program was about to end. And so uh, we jumped in. Uh, There's a $3 million campaign that's uh, ongoing right now to save the Seawolves hockey program, and... I am now super optimistic that that program is going to be saved, and it's a fantastic opportunity because we don't you know, just ordain, hey, you're part of our territory, you're now cracking fans. You have to earn it, and so the chance to earn it was such a significant issue right there in front of us was terrific. I'm headed up there in two weeks. Uh, we're going to rally the business community a little bit more, but it's the people on the ground that are doing it.
2: Would you ever think about taking a game on the on the road up up to Alaska?
1: Wouldn't it be fantastic? Um, yeah. And so, you know, Mystery Alaska, Howard Baldwin's movie was, you know, was that premise. Yeah, um, but. You know, I think that could be a spectacular one-time event. I think really what we want to create is day-in and day-out engagement. Um, and, you know, the other thing, you know, taking a game up, there is a logistical issue, and uh, the Sullivan Arena, the logical arena, is actually an Olympic sheet of ice. But, you know, uh, part of why I'm going up there is to better understand their facilities. But for sure, we can honor the game, uh, all that Alaska has contributed to the great game of hockey in our building, and we're intending on doing that this year.
2: Todd, uh you dropped a little crumb uh earlier that I wanna pick up, uh, which is about the NBA and you know, the this the tale of the Sonics. There have been podcasts, books, articles, many late night, I'm sure, sessions and bars lamenting uh the that team and, and, and what happened there. What needs to happen to get the NBA back?
1: Well, pretty simple. You gotta have an arena that's capable of hosting a team and, and generating economics commencement with NBA teams, and we've done that. Yeah, This arena is going to be absolutely perfect. Um, everything is built out. Uh, the economic model is built out. Um, Some have said, well, the hockey team took all the economics. Not true. We built this so uh, that NBA team can come in, plug and play in one of the most beautiful arenas in the world, and also uh, enjoy unfettered economics. And so we've been deliberate about it from day one. I feel it's it's part of the pledge that was made to the city when we said we would do this. Um, we won't rest until the NBA is back in Seattle.
2: You know, Todd, given your experience across all the pro sports, i got to ask you because we've all been talking about it, and I'm guessing you have as well, uh, given your intimate knowledge of, of ownership and management of teams and, and, as you say, you know, studying fan bases and, and fan behavior. Super League. I mean, unbelievable to watch from the from the sidelines. As someone who knows that sport, the sport of soccer slash football intimately, as someone who understands ownership and fans, as I said, what do you make of that? Well,
1: um, you know, first, uh, you were trying to get something organized across, uh, you know, different countries, different cultures, Um, And I think that uh, you were also trying to do it in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, And so, you know, when I look at it, um, you know, economics do drive lots of big ideas. And uh, so you you can see the economic idea there uh, that we're going to get the top teams. And, you know, that's actually what's happened in sports. The NFL is the top and the NHL is the top. Uh, soccer didn't have that distinct pyramid, so they made a run at it. I think the COVID world perhaps kept them from truly understanding what public sentiment might be. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, fans do uh, rule the day. And the fans spoke, they spoke decisively. When the government spoke, those were also fans within government speaking. Um, and, uh, you know, that passion is what fuels sport. And so, uh, I think even those who might not have, uh, might've been on the losing side of that debate, those who were the promoters, uh, can take comfort that, uh, the passion for those teams is alive and well, uh, and the fans do feel as though emotionally they own those teams. And that's really
2: what the whole thing's about. Well, Todd, uh, thank you so much. It was really great to catch up with you. You know, It's such a fun, wide-ranging conversation, given your fun and wide-ranging uh, career. Uh, a lot to look forward to, it sounds like, uh, there in Seattle with the Kraken released, as it were. And I uh, can't wait to see all the events that you're able to put together. And I think we all know, as as sports fans, that the Seattle fans, as you said, are, are a special breed in, in many ways. And it I'm I'm especially taken by what you said that, that a lot of people show up there and sort of leave their their previous hometown allegiances aside. There's there's a fervor in, in that city that is uh, that is really something to behold. So best of luck. We really appreciate it.
1: it. And, and listen, the only way for you guys really to experience it is to come on out. So yeah. I'm hereby inviting you guys to come out, uh, see a game. You'll be my guest. Uh, I'll buy you dinner and a beer after the game. Uh, but uh, you know, you get out of the studio and get some fresh air and come out and see us play. Wow. Absolutely, I'm Listen, lacing up my shoes I, right yeah, now. Exactly. Man. I'm, I'm go- right.
2: I'm googling. I'm googling it, plane tickets. <laughs>
3: My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since I was a kid. It feels better to be number one than number
4: five. I wear the number because of Mike.
1: We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first
0: started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. All right, Here gang. We go. You know there what it's go. time for, the uh, fabulous number of the week. Now, you remember when Lynch, he said that he had to get in my head because uh, and that's how he was figuring stuff out. Now he probably thought the question was going to be about New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft. He bought a house in the Hamptons in an off-market deal for forty-three million dollars. Oh no, Lynchy, oh, that's Sake. not your question. Say, <laughs> uh oh. Now this one. Now I, I'll be a little serious about this here. Um, the great Bobby Unser, one whale of a racing driver. Uh, he passed away. Uh, this week at age 87. He was a three-time winner of the Indianapolis 500. He won it in 1968, 1975, and 1981. What I'm asking you guys, what was Bobby Hunter's share for winning the 1968 Indy 500?
2: What was the purse? His share of the purse?
0: His share of the purse. Now, if you want a clue, I can give you the purse. That would be great. I'm going to give you the purse. The purse is was $712,269. That's
2: the purse. So that's the total. Total. What I want is what did he take away as the winning check? Out of 712. I'm glad you gave me that because that God knows what I would have guessed without that guidance. Um, let's say $250,000.
3: I think that's that's. I think that's high. I'm gonna go a hundred thousand. Well, it's one hundred seventy-five
0: thousand one hundred thirty-nine dollars. Okay. And I think if I'm doing the math quickly, actually, you went over. Well, Jason, you went over. But you were closer.
3: Hey, this is not Prices Right.
2: Rule. When I want to win, it's not Prices Right. Rule. That, that's how I. That's how I said. It. That's-
3: Hold on, I'm reaching. I'm reaching into my sock. I'm throwing the red challenge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's
2: funny is we were. So he said a hundred thousand. I said two hundred. Yeah, it's like dead in the middle. Yeah, That's yeah, funny. Yeah, that's funny. It was, that was that right. was pretty good. That's good. Well, I mean, I wonder if we could do a quick calculation, which I will not do because I'm not in front of my trusty Bloomberg terminal at the moment. Um, I mean, that that's still a pretty good payday in like oh, yeah. twenty twenty one dollars. Yeah, it's in, and,
0: and, and this is nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, and I mean that was very good. So uh, it was. By the way. Uh, that car if anybody is a fan of Paul Newman
2: oh the yeah the car
0: that Bobby Unser drove was the centerpiece in the movie Winning
2: ah that was
0: the car so when you see that car that's that's the one that Bobby Unser drove
2: well, there you go. All right, uh-huh. little history. Le- I mean, learned so much history in, in this episode. I mean, between Bobby Unser and Paul Newman and the, you know, Spanish influenza-affected season of the <laughs> National Hockey League, you know, Lynchie reaching <laughs> deep, uh, you know, drawing some historical parallels for the Seattle Kraken. Uh, listen.
3: Here, here's here's a Learning. deep one on the Indy 500 track. There's a golf course inside the track. Yes. Wow. Yes. Have golf you played nine, it? Yeah. No, but I when the Patriots played the Giants, they had the media party at the 500 uh, at the race straight. Yeah, and So we were in the pagoda having Hamburg sliders and sodas, and then they let us all go down to the... Uh, finish line and bend down and take our picture kissing the bricks got it and uh, you were like uh, uh it was, it was i so don't cool.
2: need to kiss the bricks but can i go just tee <laughs> <off really laughs> quick? these bricks if are it cool wasn't nine o-
3: if it wasn't nine o'clock at
0: night i would have been over with my golf clubs <laughs> yeah. playing yeah. in the play why does Lynchy have sand in it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, is that turf
2: what's what's happening here well you've been listening to the bloomberg business of sports we're here each and every week Right here at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. Those drop on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly. Find me on Twitter in the meantime at Jason Kelly News. And someone, please let me know if my
3: protest is going to be upheld. I'm Mike Lynch. You can call me at Lynch And I would have licked the bricks. Well, let's see if that stays <laughs> in the show. Uh, I'm Michael Barr on Twitter
0: at Big Barr Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports and Bloomberg Radio
4: around the world.